All right, we're in Romans chapter 3 tonight, and I'm loving this study through the book of Romans. And it, again, I was thinking about it, it's, I feel like I've preached through the book of Romans before, but the truth is, uh, I've just done a lot of preaching from the book of Romans uh, in, in my life, just because the book of Romans is really giving us the nuts and bolts and intricate details when it comes to salvation. It is laying out the doctrine of salvation. Got a lot of uh, fancy people today out there talking about their soteriology and they're just confusing the gospel like crazy. And they don't like to spend a whole lot of time in Romans. In fact, typically the people who do want to spend a lot of time in Romans are Calvinists. And I definitely look forward to taking some swings at them uh, when we start getting to like Romans chapter 9 and things like that. But at the same time... Um, you know, I don't believe in being cocky, arrogant, and in your face and things like that. But it's really hard not to be when it comes to what we teach about salvation and when we have the book of Romans that I feel like just vindicates everything we say. And I guess one of the reasons I was thinking about it this week too, while I preach a lot from Romans, is because we've been challenged a lot when it comes to what we believe about salvation. And I just feel like Romans just absolutely lays it out and most people today when they want to teach their bad salvation doctrine they go to parables and take them completely out of context and let me tell you something too sometimes people even on our side who are right on salvation they take the parables that the false prophets use to teach a work salvation and then they try to change the parable into something that doesn't teach a work salvation and they end up teaching something from the parable that the parable is not trying to teach. And it's like, listen, you know, not, I, I understand you know, you're a YouTuber and you're focused on salvation and free grace and eternal security, but not everything in the Bible is about that subject. Sometimes the Bible talks about other things. And so the fact that false prophets will use those things to teach a work salvation, the best way to debunk it is not teach how that's not teaching you know, or how it is teaching eternal security or a free salvation, but just show what it's actually teaching. And if it's teaching something unrelated, well then, that disproves what they're teaching right there. So we've got to watch out for that. But to me, if we're going to figure out what we believe about, about salvation, I think Romans is the place to go. And the, what, I wanted, what I titled tonight's message is Proof of Real Salvation, or I guess the way I should say it, Proof of Real Salvation. When you got it or evidence of real salvation, did you get the real thing? Well, when I got saved, amen, I got the real thing. Not, not some of this fake stuff people are getting. All right, so what, you know, and what is fake salvation anyway? Have you ever wondered about that? Anybody ever been to one of those churches where you, the preacher gets done and you can't figure out if you're saved or lost <laughs> because the preaching's so bad? But really, chapter 3 we can find how to get evidence for real salvation, as I'm going to call it. And um, unfortunately, we're going to find out a lot of these people who like to talk about them getting the real thing don't even know what they're talking about. But let's go ahead and see what this says. And Romans chapter 3, verse 1 says, What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision. Now, what is the point of this question? Now, remember, chapter 2 ended where it said, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly. And he said that because of the fact that Paul is reasoning 
with these people who had some wrong ideas. And he's saying that if Gentiles who don't have the law do the things contained in the law, it shows that it's in their heart. It shows they actually have something that's real. And they would actually be a judge of you. They would actually be doing better than you because a lot of the Jews, we see the problem that they had is they knew the letter of the law. They knew what the Bible said, but it wasn't in their heart. And so the truth is, Paul just made, makes a statement, this, just, this great truth, that he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. It's an inward thing. It's a circumcision of the heart. And so we understand the way one truly can get to that point and one can tr- achieve that you know, uh, circumcision of the heart is through faith in Jesus Christ. It's uh, through an acknowledgement of one's sinful condition and one's dependence on a Savior, Jesus Christ, and the blood of Christ on the atonement for sin, on all the things that can't be obtained through the law. That's what a a real Jew is. So when when Paul's asking this question, he's just stated how being a Jew is, it's not an outward thing, it's an inward thing. And he said this because if uh, righteousness comes by the law, many Gentiles would actually be better than the Jews, according to their reasoning, which was wrong. And so this would lead one to wonder then, then what would the whole point be of being a Jew? Why were there Jews? Why was there a law? Why did God have a chosen people? Why did God choose Israel? Why did God give them a temple? Why did God give them the circumcision? Why did God give them all these things if you're telling me that the Gentiles are actually doing better than the Jews. So that's what he's saying. So that's why he's bringing up this question. What advantage hath the Jew? Because again, in reality, they were just as lost as the Greeks. So, but the truth is, they did have an advantage. And he says in verse 2, much every way, chiefly, because unto them were committed the oracles of God. The Jews had every advantage when it came to an attempt to achieve righteousness. They had every advantage. Chiefly, or the main reason they had an advantage is because they had the oracles of God. Okay, now, so here's the thing. You know, if you are going to try to, let's say you're going to play a sport, isn't it going to help? Aren't you going to have an advantage over the other team or the other opponent if you have the rule book? So understand, if we're going to achieve righteousness, the law shows us how to do that. Okay? So if, we're, if there's going to be a group of people who achieve righteousness, who are we going to put our money on? The team that has the rule book, the team that God chose, the people that he gave the temple to, that he committed the oracles to, or a people who didn't know God, a people who didn't have the law of God. Obviously, the Jews had every advantage because they had the oracles of God. They had the rule book. Imagine a baseball game. Imagine if you had... You know, 18 guys, nine guys who knew all the rules of the game. Maybe they're not even the most, most athletic people in the world, but they know all the rules. And then you send nine other guys out there that have never played baseball. They don't know any of the rules. How do you think that game's going to go if there's an umpire being fair? It's not going to go good when you don't know the rules. Those other guys might be more athletic. They might start to figure out some things as they go and get a few things right and maybe accidentally hit a ball or something. But there's an advantage to knowing the rules. And the Jews knew the rules. The Jews knew exactly what the Bible said because God had given them the oracles of God. And so, verse 3, 
For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Now, why did Paul ask this question? I believe he's asking this question because there was, there was a misunderstanding that the Jews had that sadly many people still have today. And I really wish I had time to... I, I could almost spend a whole message just talking about this one point on why Paul asked this question because Paul is dealing with a misunderstanding some people had. One the dispensationalists still have. And that is there are many promises in the Old Testament about salvation and deliverance that God promised to the Jews, that God promised to Israel. There's a lot of, there's a lot of Old Testament on that. And did you know that a lot of Baptists today, they'll go back to the Old Testament and they read those promises the same way unsaved Jews did in that day. They're reading it the exact same way. And Paul is clearing, he's, he's clearing some things up here. And because there's all these promises about salvation to the Jews, this would have led many people, to, and this has led many people to still believe that the Jews are all going to be saved in the end. People, people often think in order for the Bible to be true, for God's promises to be fulfilled, there has to be some great revival in the future where the Jews get saved. People still believe that lie today. All you, what you replacement people are saying is that God broke His promise to Israel. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying you're reading that Old Testament the same way the unsaved Jews did. And you better watch out for that. Say, and it would seem that there is this confusion because, you, again, you have those who think all the Jews are going to get saved. And I think some people are thinking that then too. But Paul has made it clear already in this letter. Remember, this is one letter. So we don't want to just stay in the one chapter. He's already made it clear that you must believe on Christ in order to be saved. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Greek. So Paul has already established that you must believe on Christ to be saved. He is established in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and he's going to do it more in chapter 3, that God put no difference between the Jew and the Greek. But wait a minute, there's all these promises in the Old Testament of a salvation to the Jews. So if we have the Jews who aren't believing, is the word of God of none effect? Is the faith of God of none effect? That's what he's dealing with here. That's why he is bringing this up. And so notice what he says, God forbid. And let me just say that. If anyone, if anyone ever asks you, hey, do you think God broke his promise to Israel? God's not going to keep his promise to Israel? God forbid. God always keeps his promises. But here's my question. Are you sure you understand the promise? Are you sure you have actually paid attention to what the Bible actually says? Because notice what he says. God forbid. Yea, let God be true and every man a liar. Now, this is typically what we, a verse we just go to whenever we're wanting to nail somebody who disagrees with us. You know, like, I'll be true and every man a liar. I'm sided with God on this issue. And like, I'll be true and every man a liar. Well, okay, and I agree with that. We can t take that principle and all that. But here's, here's what Paul is specifically dealing with. He's dealing with people who are thinking the Word of God is of none effect when you have the Jews who aren't saved. doesn't look like they're going to get saved. And, but yet there's all these promises in the Bible about them being saved. So he says, God forbid, yea, let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mayest overcome 
when thou art judged. You know why he said this here? Because there's what people were saying about the Jews was not actually true. It was not actually correct. And so people are saying, you know, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible teaches. Jesus dealt with this kind of thing. We can go to a lot. We, there's a bunch of examples we can go to where Jesus, he's constantly dealing with the Jews who are like, this is what the law says. But Jesus is always correcting them. It's like, uh, no, actually the law says this. And so we've got people today, they're coming along. The Bible teaches that God's going to restore Israel one of these days, that the land still belongs to them. It's like, uh, well, no, actually. And then we go and we'll show them something else in the Bible. Here's something you're missing. And Paul deals with that. Jesus deals with that. And so when he says that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, you know what? Let's check the Word of God and make sure our sayings, like God's not done with Israel, let's make sure our sayings are lining up with the Bible. That's why he brought this up right here. And many people and men constantly say things about the Bible and doctrine and they will often act like they are speaking on behalf of God. But Paul is saying, let the Scriptures speak for themselves. And so what people often say the Bible says, what people often tell you about what the Bible says, whether it be stuff about Israel, which we're covering, or whether it be about salvation, when you search the Scriptures you will see it doesn't actually say what people are saying. And that happens all the time. People will just take a line from the Bible and then they will, they'll, they'll say something from the Scripture and then they'll just tell you a bunch of baloney. You know, and, they, and you do. When you hear somebody say Scripture, you know that's truth, so you expect the next thing to come out of their mouth to be truth. But it's not always truth. This has always been a problem that people have had to deal with. And so when it comes to the subject of the Jews, the chosen people, the children of Abraham, whatever you want to call them, there was a lot of confusion in Jesus' day. There was a lot of confusion in Paul's day. And we still have some of that confusion today. Both Jesus and Paul constantly dealt with things that were commonly stated by man that the law taught. But they would always go to the Scriptures and basically say, let's take a closer look. And the more precise interpretation, it was always the best one. Okay, and I want to give one example here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. Because I'm using this one on purpose too. Because preachers who preach confusing salvation often butcher this passage right here too. Matthew, or John 5, 39. Jesus said, search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. You know, some of you, I don't know if you really got the real thing. You know what you ought to do? You need to search the Scriptures for them and you think you have eternal life. Wait, so are you saying in the Scriptures I just think I have eternal life but I don't really have it? Is that the interpretation of it? They'll just, they'll just read that passage and then just cast doubt on people's salvation. Well, I'd keep searching those Scriptures. You better keep digging. Why? John 3.16 isn't clear enough? I mean, you know, I mean you know, what is this all about? Here's why Jesus said search the Scriptures. Okay? Because of the fact, and we don't have time to go through all of chapter 5, but notice the next verse it says, And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Because we have the Jews who are acting like they don't need to follow Jesus, that they don't need Jesus Christ. They're thinking they are okay because they are children of Abraham. They think they are okay because of their keeping of the law. They're denying everything Jesus is claiming about himself. And so when Jesus said, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And he says, and they are they which testify of me. You know what he was telling them? Go look at the Scriptures again. They testify of me. He's saying, what I am telling you about myself 
is not contrary to the Scriptures. They were trying to pit the Scriptures against what Jesus was saying. And Jesus was telling them, you know, go look again. The Scriptures testify of me. And he said, and because, and he said, you're not going to, you will not come to me that you might have life. So he's calling them out for their actually, their actual rejection of the scriptures. Them rejecting the word was them, uh, or them rejecting the, the words of God. And so he was, when he told them to search the scriptures, he was doing that so they would see Jesus himself in there. Now, why would we tell a bunch of people who believe they are saved by faith, grace through faith, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Better go search the Scriptures again. Why? They're, they're professing faith in Jesus Christ. Are, are you saying there's something in there that might tell us something other than that? No. If people are claiming Jesus Christ, they've obviously found Him. They obviously have seen what the Scriptures have to say. But then they'll just use that to teach, you know, I don't know if you repented of all your sins or whatever. And it's just like, good night, people. The, I'm, I'm telling you, man, it's embarrassing, and I hear this stuff in Baptist churches, folks. I'm not talking about stuff you hear from some non-denom churches. I'm talking about independent, fundamental, King James-only Baptist churches. They will use John 5, 39, and 40 and confuse their church members about their salvation. It's absolutely disgusting. And so, so what Jesus is basically doing here is He's telling them, go check the Scriptures again. You are wrong in your interpretation of the Scriptures. So what people are assuming about what Paul is teaching here in Romans chapter 3, he's saying, no, the Jews are not making void the law of God. You need to go check the Scriptures again. Then you'll be justified in your sayings and you're going to find out what you're teaching about Israel is not right. And he will eventually spend three whole chapters talking about Israel and the specifics of it and their salvation and how these things are are fulfilled. So... Uh, understand what all's going on here. And so Paul does the same thing in chapter 4 too. When he's trying to prove salvation is not of the law, you know what he does? He talks about Abraham. Hey, he's like, when did Abraham, when, did, when was he declared righteous in circumcision or uncircumcision? These people, they knew the story of Abraham. They pretended, they thought they were following the faith of Abraham, but yet they were trying to achieve righteousness by the works of the law. And he just said, hey, look again. Abraham was considered righteous before the circumcision. So again, you know, every false Christian religion, they use the Bible, but they're using it wrong. And people make mistakes with the Scriptures, and so we got to use the Scripture to correct these things. He does the same thing in Galatians 3. Y'all think you're Abraham's seed because of your lineage? Uh, wait a minute. Let's go back and look at Genesis. He saith not and his seeds as of many, but as of one and as I seed, which is Christ. It wasn't a, it wasn't seeds plural. It was seeds singular. You know what he did? He got more he he the preci- more precise interpretation was the correct one. And so, what many people will say about this next passage, and I would tend to agree with, um, you know, it might seem a little confusing here. But I do believe what most people say is true because, again, people are teaching the same foolishness today. And Paul is debunking a false idea right here and showing another inconsistency. And so something that's very important to understand in Paul's writings, we see this a lot. I've talked about this before. But often you'll notice when Paul will start on a subject sometimes, it's clear he's like answering a question or he's addressing something 
that had been said to him. And he doesn't always go into a lot of specifics of what those things were. And so we can't always be 100% sure what all he's responding to, but we can make assumptions based on the questions that he asks. And so it's kind of like Jeopardy, reading Paul's, uh, reading Paul's epistles sometimes. Because how does that work in Jeopardy? In Jeopardy, they give you the answer, and then you have to, and based on the answer, you have to figure out the question. He's like, he was the first president of the United States, he led the Revolutionary War. That's the answer. So what's the question? Who is George Washington, right? So what we're, uh, so what we're seeing here too, we're seeing, uh, we're seeing all the, you know, we're, uh, we kind of see the same thing in Paul's writing sometimes. He'll kind of give answers and it's clear too that he's responding to questions. And so based on the answer, we can kind of figure out the question sometimes. And so notice what he says. In verse 5, it says, But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. And some had this idea that whenever they failed in some area of the law, that their failure actually helped display or commend the righteousness of God. Okay, And that word commend, we're going to see it. In chapter 5, it says, but God commendeth his love towards us. The way God put it on display, the way God showed it, revealed it, manifested it, however you want to put it, when he died for us. That was how he showed his love. And so basically what he's saying here, and there was this idea that, you know, really the more rotten we are, the more it makes God look good. And you've got some of your trendy types, your hyper grace types, that they kind of are the same way. They kind of teach the same goofy idea. And Paul is saying that if our sin is actually a good thing, then why does God punish us when we sin? He's like, if our unrighteousness, if it commends the righteousness of God, then why does God take vengeance? That doesn't make sense. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? How can God judge the world for sin if sin's causing so much good? If it's commending the righteousness of God? So this was obviously a weird teaching that Paul's dealing with right here. For if the truth of God hath abounded through my lie unto his glory, why am I yet judged as a sinner? So if God's truth is abounding because of my lie, and it's glorifying God, then why am I being judged as a sinner? If my lie is accomplishing all this good, why am I being judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderous, we reported, and some affirm that we say, let us do evil, that good may come, whose damnation is just. And so if, if that were true, if that were true that our unrighteousness just makes God look good, then you know what? We might as well teach people. Just go ahead and sin. Go ahead and be horrible. And you know it'll, it's actually a good thing. And he said too that some even say that we're teaching that. And we often get accused of that kind of thing too because we teach eternal security. Oh, you're just teaching people to go sin and do all these terrible things and you know they're still going to go to heaven. Well, not really, because uh, we also believe in the chastening of God. So, no, we don't teach that. Okay? And uh, listen, I obviously, hell is horrible and worse than anything we could ever go through on this earth. And the Bible does teach we're guaranteed to not go to hell once we get saved. But you know what? If God decides he's going to punish us for sin on this earth, I promise the sin's not going to be worth it. So, I've never heard any that believes eternal security, teach, just go ahead and sin, that good may come. No, there's not going to be good that comes from it. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be judgment. You're going to wish you hadn't done it. 
You're going to regret it. So, but how can God judge the world if sin's causing so much good? So Paul is saying that there were some that were accusing him of teaching that type of thing. Said, And we get the same accusations thrown at us. So he goes on to say, what then? Are we better than they? No. No and no wise. For we have pr- before proved both Jews and Gentiles that all are under sin. So while the Jews had an advantage, Paul sums it up here saying that they're no better and that they're under sin. The Jews never achieved righteousness by the law. No one ever did. Just as was spoken in Psalms 14 and Psalms 53, says the same thing as what we're about to see right here. He's quoting from two of the Psalms. And it says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And not only that, you know, and people are like, oh, yeah, we're all sinners, but people still don't think they're that bad. Well, what does God actually think of us not so bad sinners? Okay, those of us who haven't been on shooting sprees and killed a bunch of people. Well, it says their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. That doesn't sound too good. Are we that bad? <laughs> hey, in the eyes of a holy God, yes. In the eyes of a holy God whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This was the state of the world. And every time people give these hypothetical scenarios, like we talked about last week, of a group of people out there that have never heard about Jesus, you know, but they're seeking after righteousness and glory and eternal life, and they can be saved without Jesus. No, Paul is showing here, that while that would be true, if somebody was out there and they were righteous, then why wouldn't they get eternal life? You realize we go to hell because of sin. So if, if there was somebody out there somewhere in a wilderness somewhere who's never sinned, you know, who was seeking after God, why wouldn't they go to heaven? Of course they would go to heaven and have eternal life. But there aren't any. There aren't any. So, um, verse 19, you know, there are no holy men out there. Okay, you know, you hear about holy men like monks and priests and things like that. And you know what? Those are the ones usually turn out to be perverts. They're some of the worst ones. There are there are no holy men. So he says, now we know now. And this is where I really want you to start paying attention. Now, we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. One of the foolish, horrible, just destructive teachings that has come from dispensationalism is this dispensation of the law foolishness to where people will often, and they'll, they're basically quoting a passage of Scripture, well, they'll bring up how we're not under the law. Now, whenever people typically say, we're not under the law, why do they usually say that? They usually say that because we're calling out some kind of sin. I've seen it several times this month with people out there. I I just saw it the other day on Twitter. I mentioned it the other day where some guys like, you know, some of these people, you know, talking about death penalty for sodomites. Have you ever read the New Testament? And it's like, yeah, 
Have you ever read the New Testament? Have you ever read Romans 1? And here, and so what they'll, and they say, you know, we're not under the law, is what they'll say. And then, I, I saw a lady that, this really blew my mind. This was one of those things, I keep scrolling, keep scrolling, because I didn't even know this person. But somebody asked something about circumcision in a question, and she said, it's something that is for the Jews and for the nation of Israel that is still in effect to this day. And it's like the New Testament literally spells it out for us that we don't need to do that anymore. We don't need to worry about that anymore. But that same person, if you started talking about the, the civil law, that, that was under the law. That was Old Testament. It's just like, what is wrong with you people? But notice uh, that the truth is the people who are not under the law but under grace are people who have put their faith and trust in Christ. If you are not saved, you are under the law. That is why you are a sinner. Because you are guilty of breaking God's law. So guess what? It, and it says right here, whatsoever things the law said, it said to them that are under the law that all the world may become guilty before God. How can we be guilty of a law that isn't in effect? What, if, if we're not under the law, then what do we need to be saved from? Somebody tell me, and I get it, the ceremonial law, Jesus finished those things, but when we're talking about the moral law, you better believe we are under the moral law. That is why we are sinners, because we have transgressed God's law. Stop telling people they're not under the law, especially when they're not saved. You better believe they're under the law and they're going to go to hell as payment for violating that law. So this is just a, a dumb thing that you know people have just picked up from their dispensational teachings. But in order, in, in order for one to be saved, they must recognize their guilt. And look, there's nothing in the Bible, and you can't show me this, and nobody ever has tried to show it, that teaches some you know, level of remorse or emotion or number of tears that you have to shed in order to be saved. Okay? Often when the fat camp meeting preacher gets up and talks about when I got real salvation, you know, he talks about the tears he shed, the weeping that he did, and some of these, y'all, you weren't emotional enough, you didn't do no crying, you didn't run no glory laps, I doubt you're even saved. You know, you haven't gotten over all the things of the flesh like I have, that my, you know, massive gut proves. You know, I've gotten victory over the flesh. It's just like, no. I'm telling you, these people are such hypocrites. They're hypocrites, and it just absolutely disgusts me. So you're going to tell somebody they're probably not still saved because they're struggling to get over their cigarettes. If I put a box of Oreos in front of you, you'd start salivating like a dog. You know, and then you're, you're just, I wonder if you're really even saved. It's like, come on. What, what, is, what is wrong with these people? There is nothing that teaches that, but it is true. One must recognize their guilt. And everyone goes to this next passage when giving the gospel to make sure people realize they're a sinner. Because if you're not a sinner, what are you believing on Christ for? If you're not a sinner, why did Jesus die? What did he pay for? So obviously, you know, we believe that one must recognize their guilt. And that there's absolutely no doubt about that. If you don't think you're a sinner, there's absolutely no way for you to be saved. So verse 21 says, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by the faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, 
For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone knows verse 23. Everybody, everyone knows verse 23. But not many people know verse 21 and 22, which is showing, notice what it says, but now the righteousness of God. You know what we need in order to be saved? We need the righteousness of God. Now, the righteousness of God is without the law. The righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Okay, because the law and prophets spoke of this. The, and and I, I've talked about this before. The, we talk about the Romans road and people act like it's a New Testament thing. No, Paul throughout this entire book is going to the Old Testament to prove what he's teaching about salvation. So uh, don't even try to give me that nonsense. But he is saying that this righteousness of God without the law, this was written by the law and the prophets. This was in the Old Testament. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all them that believe. For there is no difference. So again, and we're going to see this many more times throughout the book of Romans, believing is how we get it. Believing on Christ. The righteousness of God comes from believing on Christ. And it's a righteousness that is without the law. So when we're going to try to prove somebody's salvation, why on earth would we go to the law to prove it? Why would we check up their keeping of the law? Their performance of the law? Why would we check their reformation? Why would we do that? Where do we get that idea from the Bible? We don't get that from the Bible. That is completely contrary to what the Bible says. And he goes on to say, you know, for there is no difference. Once again, showing, because the context of this is he's showing there's no difference in between how the Jew gets saved and how the Greek gets saved. God's going to judge the Greek just like he judges the Jew. The Jew's guilty of sin. The Greek's guilty of sin. The ones who are saved are those who believe on Christ. The righteousness of God comes from faith in Jesus Christ, and it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. So if, we are, if uh, somebody is going to manifest the righteousness of God, okay, and it, we, it is okay for us as believers, it's okay for us as a church to try to figure out if people are saved. It's, it's, it's okay for us. It's responsible for us as soul winners to try to figure out if people are saved. So what do we do when we're trying to figure out if someone is saved? We are looking for the righteousness of God. So you know where we're not going to look? We're not going to look at their keeping of the law. You know what we're going to look for? We're going to look for their faith. That's what we're going to look for. We're going to find out where their faith is. And so we're going to find out what they profess. That's where we're going to get the evidence of real salvation. The one that really gets it done. I'm not talking about your reformation that you have to get every year after you get convicted at the camp meeting. I'm talking, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about real salvation. It's a one and done thing. It's a once and for all. See, you know, that's, that's what I'm talking about. So verse 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so notice here, we're justified freely. So it doesn't sound like uh, there's any works required or payment required in our part. Redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christ redeemed us. 
So far, it's looking like he's done all the work. It's looking like something that he's performed. Verse 25, whom God hath set forth to be the propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. So you notice that the, the righteousness that, that's declared is his righteousness. You know what? Pastor Fat Gut at the camp meeting, whenever he's getting up talking about his reformation, he is up there professing his righteousness. He's up there talking about the things he used to do that he don't do anymore. And the great change since I've been born again. He wants to talk about his changed life. That in, if we're talking about his keeping of the law, then technically there is no change. Because that, that's what we saw in Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, if you're going to go keep the law, you've got to keep the whole thing. Well, you know what? Before you got saved, you weren't keeping all the law. After you got saved, you're not keeping all the law. So it's hypocrisy to act like you are. Now, it's wonderful. It's a great thing if you're not committing as many sins as you used to. But you know what? I hope that a year after you get saved, you're not committing as many sins as you used to. But I hope five years from that, you're not committing as, sin, as many sins as you used to. Hopefully, you're always getting better. But you know what? There's something the Bible talks about too a lot called backsliding. People backslide. Save people backslide. But then hopefully you get right with God and you, know, you start doing better again. But at, at the end of the day, to make any of that about salvation is very hypocritical because nobody is keeping the, is keeping the law. That should not be seen as evidence of salvation. That's not right. And so we declare His righteousness not our righteousness. So when we ask people how they know they are going to heaven, you know what we do when we're soul winning? We listen to see if they declare their righteousness or His righteousness. And what do most people say? I've been a good person. I've kept the commandments. You know what they're doing? They're declaring their righteousness. You know what? Whenever we go out soul winning and someone declares their righteousness, you know what we assume? That they're not saved. We proceed as if they're not saved. And we don't just tell them right then, well, you're not saved. What, you know what we typically do? Hey, can I show you something in the Bible that says something a little bit different? And then we go through the Gospel to try to show them what the Bible actually teaches. And, you know, and it's always our hope that they'll, they'll see that and they'll notice it. And, it's in, you know, and then we do. We'll point those things out. We'll kind of bring them back to it. Show, hey, have you noticed what the Bible says is a little different than what you said, said before? Now, do, you now, do you now understand that it's not about your works? It's not about keeping the law. It's just faith in Christ. We're trying to correct that because we want them to go from declaring their own righteousness to declaring His righteousness. And when we, so when we go to somebody's house, we ask them how they know they're going to heaven and they start declaring the righteousness of Christ, you know what we assume? They're saved. Even if they go to a church we don't like, we assume that they're saved when they're declaring His righteousness. Because... That's what a saved person does. A saved person declares his righteousness. You know why? Because Jesus Christ, notice in verse 26, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So, who is the justifier of the believer? Jesus. You know what's not the justifier? Me. Oh, I got to see if you really got it. So I'm going to I'm going to check his keeping of the law. See if I see a change that I like. 
See if I see a change that's satisfactory to us as independent fundamental Baptists. Well, good night. If that's the way I have to do to get saved, I'm joining some of these trendy churches because let me tell you, there's trendies out there that have the gospel right, and but they don't have, uh, they don't make you repent of as many sins as us independent fundamental Baptists do. <laughs> And so it would be easier to achieve righteousness there. But no, that's, that's not, or it'd be easier to be justified there. No, Jesus is the justifier. So that's why, too, we have no problem saying we can never lose our salvation. Well, what if you sin? Uh, Why? Well, that's not really what I have to worry about. I would only lose my salvation if Jesus sinned. And we don't want, we're safe there. We're secure there. He's gone in eternity so far without sinning. And he's going to keep doing that. So we're, we're trusting in him. If I'm going to trust in me not sinning, then we've got a lot of problems. And it's just amazing too. I mean, I've, I've made some of these eternal security videos and just all the people trying to correct me and just using these verses. If you sin, you're clearly not saved. And it's like, have you ever actually read the law? And they, I mean, these people are clearly declaring their own righteousness. No, we declare the righteousness of Christ. That's, how, that's why we can be so bold about the fact that we're going to go to heaven and we're not even worried about it. I don't, I don't ever worry about hell. Ever. Because Jesus is just and the justifier of him which believe in Jesus. And so, as exciting as it is to see someone get saved and turn their life around, we need to make sure we don't make one's works the justifier. And now, there are clowns out there, okay? I, I've come across some of these people on the internet, just these kind of circus clowns, single issue type Christians that they're so, you know, hardcore on the free grace and, you know, all this kind of stuff that it's like they almost want to display their unrighteousness, you know, daring you to say they're not saved because of just how wicked they are. Because that just proves you believe that works are what prove you're saved and therefore you're not even saved. Well, listen, I'm not even going to go as far as to say those people aren't saved because, again, I mean, how many before, you know, if you see somebody doing something really horrible, you think they're probably not saved. You know, if I see some guy out there after church, drunk, egging our church, I'm going to assume that guy's not saved. You think salvation is by works. I just, I'm going to think they're lost and they're doing something like that. I don't know. I don't know if that's an evident token of perdition or not. I don't see that in the Bible. Maybe not. You know, maybe he's just really drunk and doesn't know what he's doing. That's just what I'm going to assume. And so, again, if your behavior is bad enough, don't be surprised if people don't think you're a Christian that are saved. Okay? So, you know, watch out for some of these goofball clowns that are out there. But let me tell you something. You know, we should re- rejoice when somebody does turn their life around after getting saved. We should rejoice. We should encourage them to do that. We should try to motivate them to do that. We should always be working on this kind of thing. But let's keep those things in two separate categories. Let's keep the gospel the gospel. Let's keep the changed life about the changed life. It is possible for somebody to be saved and not change their life. So you know what we're not going to do? We're not going to go confusing people when it comes to this thing. You know what we're going to do? We're going to try to get people saved. And after we get people saved, we're going to let them enjoy the fact that they're saved. But as a church, we're going to try to motivate, provoke each other to love and good works. We're going to try to uh, you know, help people get better and to become more like Christ. And when people do, we're going to rejoice in that. We're not going to be like, well, they must have really got it, amen. No, we're going to be like, hey, we're glad you got victory. Hey, they're actually walking in the Spirit. They're, so they won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. They're displaying 
the fruit of the Spirit, which is actually, if we are being biblical, if we'll be search the Scriptures and be justified in our sayings, it's the fruit of walking in the Spirit, not fruit of having the Holy Spirit, as some people teach. No, it's the fruit of walking in the Spirit. And there is the fruit of walking in the Spirit, just as there is the fruit of walking in the flesh. And the works of the flesh are manifest. Are these? And, give you, and it gives you that list of things. That person, they're walking. The, if, they're, if you're doing that kind of thing, you're walking in the flesh. If I'm having an anger problem, it's because I'm walking in the flesh. But if I'm in the Spirit, you know what? I'm going to be doing. I'm not. I'm not going to be doing anything wrong, because against such there is no law. You know, there's no there's no laws against any of the things that you'll do when walking in the Spirit and displaying the fruit of the Spirit. So we've got to keep these things in the right categories. We have to do that. And too many Baptists are blending these things. I, you know, I even heard a message recently where the guy's preaching. It's just like part of the message he's saying stuff that's right on the money. Then other parts, it's like, wait a minute, what, what you just said there completely contradicted. And it's like he's mixing up these. He's mixing these two doctrines together. And let me tell you, they're both in the Bible. There is a sanctification that Christ does for us when we are saved. The Bible teaches that. But the Bible also teaches the sanctification that we do for ourselves, where we separate ourselves and sanctify ourselves so we can uh, be used of God. Those are two separate doctrines, though. But sometimes just crummy preachers, they kind of blend the two, and then people are confused. And then you have that person who maybe isn't really sanctifying themselves for, for God. And then you listen to that preacher. It's like, oh, wait, okay, so are they, am I saved or am I not saved? And they're just confused. And that's why we have youth conferences where, you know, People, you know, same kids get saved every year. It's absolutely pathetic. And I don't like it. So verse 27, where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. There is no boasting in salvation. Why? Because there's no works involved in salvation. You can't, you can't brag on yourself when you're declaring Jesus' righteousness. You had nothing to do with Jesus' righteousness. So, the, but we can boast in Christ. We can glory in the cross. But in ourselves, we can't do it. So he says, therefore we conclude. So we're putting all the evidence together. We're looking at what the Scripture says. We're using common sense. And we conclude. Here's the conclusion. Here's the final word on this. That a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Stop trying to make laws part of getting saved or proving that you're saved. No, justification is without the deeds of the law. It's settled, done, it's over. No disputing the fact. Law does not justify. Faith in Jesus does. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at this man. No, What's it, is he declaring his righteousness or his own righteousness? If he's declaring the righteousness of Christ, we're going to assume that person's saved. And so the inconsistencies that come from preachers' mouths are just off the charts when it comes to this subject, and they always end up just showing themselves to be hypocrites. And an example, too, where these guys show themselves to be hypocrites is, is for one, you know, why is it that hundreds of people can get saved on a mission trip that they go on, and the church, does, you know, hundreds, thousands of people get saved, and then the church doesn't grow on that mission trip, but then... If that same thing happens locally, those people probably didn't really get it. Why is, why is that? 
They'll always show the pictures. They'll talk, you know, as long as it was in a foreign country, it's okay to talk about hundreds of people getting saved. But locally, we've got to be quiet about that. Because people will call you out on it. I talked to an evangelist one time who said he quit sharing his numbers because he kept getting criticized by preachers you know, and accusing him of easy believism and you know, cheap, teaching cheap grace. You know, you know, all the things that they just throw out at you and all that, all that kind of stuff. And I just told him, I said, man, I wish you would go back to reporting your numbers. You know why they don't want to see that? Because you're just putting them to shame. Because if you can get it done, then people are going to say, why aren't we getting it done? And it's because they're lazy and because they're not doing anything. I was like, you ought to share your numbers. Not because not you're bragging, but to, just to remind people, it's easy to get people saved. A lot of people are out there getting saved and stop letting these preachers that can't you know, exegete anything shame you from doing that kind of thing. They're hypocrites. They all brag about their hundreds saved in their mission trip, but they, they will not talk about it locally. You know, and can these guys too prove to us that all the people they use in their dramatic illustrations, where they give these dramatic talk about these dramatic conversions, you know, people they got saved while sowing, are those people all still in church? You know, where are they? Why aren't they with you? You know, they it's just it's it's hypocrisy. You know, you have these evangelists, they'll they'll always be talking about the person that they got saved. You know, it's like everywhere they go, they're just getting all these people saved in hotels and waitresses at restaurants and all these things. But again, they're traveling around. So, but are all these churches growing where you're going to? You know, they, they can't prove these things. You know, how many of these teens and people in their revivals who are getting saved? Praise the Lord, already had 47 people saved in our revival meeting. 47 people, and these are people that, not they got out souling, people they got to walk the altar on a Monday through Friday. You got 40, you got that many lost people in church on weeknights? That's pretty good. You know, in a, you know, in a church of you know, a couple hundred people, and that many people saved, how many of those were church members? How many of those were repeat offenders? <laughs> people who've been saved many times. You know, uh, they, they don't talk about those things, do they? You know why? Because at the, at the end of the day, it's just hypocrisy. Why is it so hard for people who grew up in church, who clearly love the Lord, they've been trying hard to please God, but yet they're having such a hard time figuring out if they're saved? Why, why is that? You know why? It's because they're not preaching right. They're confusing people. It's bad doctrine. It's easy for people to get saved. And let me tell you, soul winners should never let anyone or any preacher discourage you from your soul winning efforts because all this junk that they barf and that they say, and you will hear a bunch of lazy preachers amening the daylights out of these guys when they preach this stuff. I've listened to the clips. I've watched some of the sermons. They really like to preach this stuff at preachers' conferences and things like that. And you will hear a bunch of lazy preachers amening like crazy because they hate the other preacher across town who actually goes soul winning and is talking about all his conversions, well, they're getting nothing in their church. They, they love that kind of stuff. It justifies their laziness. But just understand, they are only exposing their hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. I've followed a lot of these people enough. I've seen what they say, what they do. They are they're just, they're, they're not consistent. 
The only ones that aren't hypocrites are the ones who admit they've only got three people saved in the last 15 years of their church, and, you know, and that's all they think got saved. Because those are the only three that ever stuck around. And there are. There's, there's preachers out there, they'll kind of brag on how few people they've gotten saved. <laughs> oh, but at least all are stuck. Yeah, those, it was the ones that grew up you know, in the church. Those are the only ones you got to stick. So verse 29, is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. And so this is how it works for Jews and Gentiles. God is not just the God of the Jews. He's also God of the Gentiles. He is Lord of the Jews and the Gentiles. The law is for the Jews and the Gentiles. And Jews and Gentiles are both guilty, but Jesus Christ paid for the sins of both Jews and Gentiles They all get saved the same. There is no difference. So watch this. Do we then make void the law through faith? Now that we're in the new dispensation, we don't need the law, right? No. He said, do we make void the law through faith? God forbid. Are we saying because salvation is not about the works of the law, that the law just doesn't even matter anymore? No. We establish the law. Now, why did he say that? Because of the fact to, to make void the law would be to claim that one must be saved by the law because anyone who says they're saved by the law, they're going to have to throw out many of the laws. Do you understand that? If circumcision gets you saved, that is keeping of the law. And if that actually gets you saved, that means we do have to actually throw out all the rest of the law. So teaching a, a circumcision for salvation would actually be making void the law. But no, the law is good. But... That's not, we're not saved by the law. And so, what we, uh, what we teach says that all of the law is good, but it also says that I am guilty. See, we recognize all of it. Not just the laws that the camp meeting preachers like to talk about. No, we believe all of it. And we believe we're guilty of it, and therefore, our only hope is faith. We also are recognizing its authority. We acknowledge its judgment that is pronounced that it is good and fair. And so to just kind of a closing illustration, okay? When the pandemic started, okay? We, you know, there were people who acted like we had a guy show up before one of our services one time to check to see what we were doing. And he informed me that we were meeting illegally to which I said, uh, actually, we are not meeting illegally. You know why? Because I did not acknowledge our governor's authority to shut us down. You know why? Two reasons. One, the Constitution shows that he doesn't have that authority. But two, the Bible. So I didn't. I didn't. So the thing is, we weren't breaking any law. I don't recognize their authority. And so understand many. The reason many people think that they are going to go to heaven by the keeping of the law is because one, they don't recognize the authority of the law or they don't re- actually know what it says. Or there's just people too, they don't believe on Christ. They don't recognize the fact that God can throw them into hell and that he will throw them into hell. They are not acknowledging that. And so the, the truth is, we as believers in salvation by grace through faith, we fully recognize the weight of the law we fully recognize the Lordship of Christ. And we're not like the Lordship salvation people who make void the law and act like, you know, you've got to make Jesus Lord of your life and you've got to keep the list of things that they've come up with. No, 
We recognize Jesus is Lord of all and all of the law is good, but we are guilty. But we also recognize too that Jesus did fulfill the law, lived a perfect sinless life, made full atonement for sins, and that our salvation is through faith in Him. We actually recognize that. So understand, when we are acknowledging we're sinners, we're, we're saying that the law is good. We're establishing the law. We're, under, we're, we're recognizing its authority that it has over us, and so we declare ourselves guilty before God because we have violated the law of God where if somebody would have tried taking me to court, I'd have pled not guilty breaking any laws. Because one, I don't recognize the governor's authority on those things. And many people, if they were to stand before God, they'd, you know, right now they'd plead not guilty. But the thing is, they would, then the book's going to be open. They're going to be proven to be wrong in transgression. And he is Lord and he's, he's going to throw them into hell. And so this is why it's so foolish for dispensationalists or even trendies who act like the law doesn't matter anymore. The law proves our guilt. The law is good. And the way we get under grace is through faith in Christ. And so if you're not saved, you're under the law. You know what that means? You're in trouble. The wages of sin is death. You're on your way to hell as a result of it. You need to get under grace by believing on Jesus Christ and stop worrying about the deeds of the law and trying to do that to get you there. Just trust Jesus. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for the free gift of salvation. We thank You for uh, dying for us. We thank You for making it so crystal clear what a person has to do to be saved. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us. Uh, even though there's a lot of opposition out there, that we will loudly proclaim uh, the uh, gospel of free salvation and eternal security. Help us get that word out so we can see many more people saved. In your name we pray. Amen.